All right, if we can turn to Esther chapter 6. We're making short work of Esther, so to speak, going quickly. Um, We will take a break on Reformation Sunday and uh, spend a week in Romans 4, uh, just to give you a heads up on that. Not sure why I want to give you a heads up, aside from I'm letting you get to uh, Esther 6. All right. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorial deeds, memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Theresh, Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay kings, ugh, lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes in the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Jeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Jeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, You shall not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, 
For as much as our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness. To your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes life doesn't turn out the way you think it will, or the way you hope it will. Going into the uh, American League Divisional Series, all of the baseball pundits had declared that the Red Sox were clearly ready to defeat the Cleveland Indians. It seemed that way because the Indians' pitching uh, staff had, been, had suffered some serious injuries, and so some of their best pitchers were not available. And so it looked like the Red Sox would steamroll to victory, hopefully on their way to the World Series for one last go-around for Big Poppy before he retired. But you know, there's a reason they actually play the games. <laughs> And that reason ended up being that the Red Sox got swept by the Indians. It doesn't always turn out the way you think it will. Here, Haman has an idea of how it's going to turn out. And it does not turn out the way he thinks it will, the way he wants it to, he needs it to. Our big idea is that God answers our prayers for deliverance in mysterious ways. And first off, we see that God moves in mysterious and mundane ways. We left off last week with the reality that unknown to Esther and Mordecai, Haman is busy at work throughout the night preparing for Mordecai's execution. He has followed the advice of his wise men and is in the process of putting that 75-foot pole in the middle of the city so that Mordecai can be executed upon that pole. And so he is sleepless in Susa with this activity. But again, Mordecai and Esther do not know There is nothing they can prepare for. This would be a a sudden event for them. But we see that God knows and God is working to frustrate the plans of Haman. God is the one who is opposing this proud man. And so we see first off, as this, this passage begins, on that night the king could not sleep. Literally, it says, sleep fled from him. That's important because it takes place on that night. If this happens the next night, it's irrelevant for the life of Mordecai because Mordecai is already dead. And so on the precise proper night, sleep escapes Xerxes. Now, if I'm a king... Back then, and I'm particularly a godless king back then, and I have all kinds of opportunities that are before me, like a harem, the last thing I probably would do is ask that the record of memorable events be read in my presence. 
I sort of understand Xerxes at this moment. Because when I was in college, in my freshman year, I took a course on American history, and one of the books that I had to purchase and read was Two Years Before the Mast. I never finished this book because it was so boring. But when it was book buyback time, I didn't turn it in for money because of when I had insomnia. (laughs) When sleep fled from me... I would go to that book and read in hopes that I would fall asleep. So I completely understand what's going on here in the the bedroom of Xerxes the king. And so it just so happens that of all the things he could do, he chooses to have this read to him. He has been king now for 12 years. Okay? And so there is 12 years of material from which these men could draw. Now, we don't know if he instructed them to read from certain years. It's possible that his insomnia was was caused by uh, Esther's request. Perhaps he was worked up with curiosity. We don't know. The text is silent as to what means God used to keep him awake. It's possible that he was thinking of... Esther, when he chose perhaps the year of memorable events, but anyway, it says that it was found written how Mordecai saved the king. And so here it is that the very night that Haman is sleepless here in Susa, seeking to um, dispatch of Mordecai first thing in the morning, The king is kept from sleeping, so he's also sleepless in Susa. Then in an attempt to fall asleep, he has these court records read to him. And of all of the parts of the court records that could be read, he hears about Mordecai, the very man that Haman wants put to death. And so the coincidences, the rather mundane coincidences, begin to pile up precisely because God is at work to exalt Mordecai and humble Haman. We are reminded of C.S. Lewis's quote that um, coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous, and so God is anonymously working behind the scenes here in Esther. But we also need to remember that the prayers of God's people which have been raised over the last three days minimum, are now being answered. And I say minimum because when you live under a wicked king, you've probably been praying for more than three days. You probably already were praying, and you prayed even more fervently after the release of the edict for the destruction of your people. And so these prayers now are being answered. But they're being answered in what seems to be a very uneventful, insignificant sort of way. I mean, it's not dramatic that the king can't sleep. It's not dramatic that the king has the records read to him and he hears about Mordecai. I'm reminded of how most of the birth of Jesus is relatively undramatic. If you take out the uh, the angels and the she- you know that's uh, revealed to the shepherd. You have an ordinary sort of birth, one that was 
generally unheralded at that time. God works not just in the spectacular things, but most often he works in the rather mundane things and answer to prayer. His people here in Persia have been waiting for his deliverance. And if we wait for God's deliverance, we will persist in prayer as well. Because we know that our deliverance does not come from our hands, from our plans, our plots, not from anyone else's, but ultimately come from him. God is the only one at work here. The account, the providence that takes place excludes the working of anyone else on the behalf of the Jews but God himself. We see here another example from Scripture. Isaiah 30. I mentioned it in Sunday school and for this reason. Because Hosea was calling them, uh, the people of his day, to wait patiently for the Lord, for the, his deliverance. And here in Isaiah, his contemporary in the southern kingdom says essentially the same thing. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And so instead of having some sort of palace coup, all right, to overthrow Xerxes and therefore get rid of this decree, they are by prayer waiting on the Lord, the God who is just, to bring about their deliverance. And now God is beginning to bring it about. We are reminded of the parable of the persistent widow who kept asking and praying. And Jesus wonders at the, again at the end, will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And so in the midst of great difficulty that could include life or death, we are still invited to trust the Lord and pray for deliverance. And that we wait by praying. Those two things are not separated, but they're, they're joined together. We're meant to wait as we pray. Well, when the king hears of this, he asks, So, what was done for Mordecai? And the answer was nothing. Now, that would bring shame to a Persian king. because Especially in this case, because he had rescued the king from a plot by his own servants to kill him. What you want to do is be, as a Persian king is be known as someone who rewards loyalty. And in an honor society, which the Persian culture was, this was a disgraceful thing, this oversight and honoring Mordecai. And so the king feels that this must be rectified at once. And so he's going to do it. See. 
But perhaps this oversight, this earlier oversight, was also from the providence of God, precisely so it could be rectified at the best possible time. Remember, when we read about uh, Mordecai passing this news along, we expected there to be some sort of promotion for him at the end of chapter 2 or the beginning of chapter 3, and it immediately launches into the promotion of Haman. The wrong man, so to speak, got promoted, and now God is about to deal with this injustice. But you don't ask your nighttime attendants for wisdom, for a plan, do you? And we know that Xerxes is not really good at thinking on his feet, shall we say. He always seems to ask someone else what he should do. And so his immediate inclination here in the middle of the night, it's perhaps early morning, is to say, who is in the court? And there actually is someone in the court. Because the other sleepless man has arrived because he wants to be first in line to meet with the king and to make his request and to see the bitter end of Mordecai. So they say, Haman is there. So we see that God's providence is often mysterious and mundane, but works towards our deliverance, which continues in the second part of this story, that God moves to preserve and exalt those who love him. Before Haman can get a word in edgewise, I mean, he's been all night long, he's been thinking about this thing. That's why he's there first thing in the morning before court is really open, because he can't wait to ask about the death of Mordecai. Can I, you know, speed up the timetable for this one guy who refuses to bow down before me against your command and wish, O king? Okay? But the king cuts him off before he can do anything. He says, what should be done for the man that the king wishes to honor? And I'm glad many of you laughed. Because it's supposed to be funny. There is a high amount of irony that takes place in this text. But the irony only happens if the purpose, the true purpose of government plays out. And so we see in Romans 13, as well as in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are supposed to honor the king and those who are in power precisely because they have been tasked by God, even if they realize it or not, with two purposes. One is to do good, reward, or praise those who do good, and the other is to punish the wicked. And so, in one of those rare, miraculous sorts of moments, Xerxes is actually going to fulfill the will of God by doing what he's supposed to do and rewarding the good of Mordecai. But Haman, of course thinks to himself, and he's probably very glad he didn't say this out loud, whom would the king want to honor more than me? 
And so here we see the, the same pride that was so angry at Haman's refusal to bow before him now is revealed in the fact that obviously the king is planning to honor me, Haman, even though I've done nothing except plan the execution of the Jews. He is full of himself. And we see that uh, God, is, in a sense, is setting him up for his fall from grace. The king's grace, not God's grace. But pride often blinds us to reality. Nonetheless, he responds eagerly to the king's request. And if there's something we know about Haman, he doesn't seem to need money. So he does not ask for a financial reward. What he seeks is the one thing that he craves more than anything else, and that is public honor. And so on, on his feet, he thinks, how would I want to be honored? And so what he thinks of quickly is the king's robes. Not just any, not like, you know, the ones just off the brand new out of the package, ones the king has worn. Okay? Ones that he has used to be placed upon this person that you want to honor, O king. And, and that person should be placed on a, a horse and a horse that has your crown on it. And archaeologists have indeed found um, pictures, you know, carvings of royal horses with crowns on them. So they're in, you know they're a royal horse, not just Joe the farmer's horse. Okay? And so he wants to be placed upon this horse while he's wearing the king's robes, and he wants a most noble official to lead this horse through the city square, declaring this is what happens to the one in whom the king delights. Now, we think of this, and we probably go, this sounds rather silly, don't we? But perhaps what we read from Genesis helps us understand a little bit of what's going on. Because Joseph experienced something very similar. He received new clothes. He received the signet ring. Now, Haman already has the signet ring. We read about that in chapter uh, 3. But also from 1 Kings chapter 1, we see that riding on the king's horse can be seen as a symbol of enthronement. Essentially what Haman is saying is, I want to be king. And Xerxes doesn't catch it, because Xerxes is pretty clueless. <laughs> but he essentially wants to reign and rule over Persia. He wants more than he already has as the second most powerful person in Persia.
Haman, his day is not going to work out like he wished it would. He will be more disappointed than Big Poppy was. Because Haman is the one who is tasked to honor his enemy. You see, that's what happens. The king never imagined that Haman would be quite so pompous as to think it was himself and didn't mention whom was going to be honored until he says, You, my noble prince, grab the robes, grab the horse, go on down to the city gate where Mordecai is and honor him in this way. And so Mordecai will not be killed this day, despite the plans of Haman, but he will be honored despite the plans of Haman. So if you went on our Facebook page last night or this morning, what you saw was a picture of Harry Truman holding up the Chicago Daily Tribune, which has as, had as its headlight that, uh, headline that morning, Dewey defeats Truman. And the Chicago Daily Tribune was wrong. They went to bed thinking that Thomas Dewey, the governor of uh, New York State, had triumphed over the incumbent president. Didn't turn out that way. Haman, I wouldn't say woke up, didn't, wouldn't say went to bed, spent the whole night thinking that he's going to destroy Mordecai the next day, and he discovers, in fact, that now he's going to honor Mordecai. Consider for a moment, if you were Mordecai, and you're sitting there at the city gate doing what you're supposed to be doing first thing in the business day, and here comes Haman, and here comes other officials. You're probably thinking, this is not good for me. Okay? And yet, it was to honor him. Consider for a moment if you were Haman. I won't ask you about the, uh, the, the person you hate most because I hope you don't have a person you hate most. Okay? But imagine for a moment the person you least want to win the presidential election. <laughs> and imagine that you are the person who has to announce it to the world and raise their hand and say, ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States. And think for a moment of how inside you would want to die. That's Haman. This is the thing he least wants to do in his entire existence. But here he is at the command of the king, which he cannot disobey unless he die. This is what he must do. He must honor and exalt his sworn enemy, Mordecai. Now what's interesting in this is that Xerxes says, 
Mordecai the Jew. I don't know if he put one and one together and got two. (laughs) But he certainly knew that Mordecai was a Jew. He had figured this out. And so Mordecai the Jew is the one who is going to be honored. The man who was meant to be lifted up by his death instead is lifted up to his honor. The man who was supposed to be stripped in humiliation is now enrobed with the king's robes for his glory and for his honor. And so Mordecai's great reversal points us to the great reversal of Christ, who like Mordecai was hated by his enemies but was glorified by the Father. The sackcloth of Mordecai was exchanged for the king's robe, which foreshadows his coming exaltation at the end of this book. But we see that Jesus exchanged his grave clothes for the eternal glory and dignity at the Father's right hand, where he sits forever, reigning and ruling. Mordecai is unwillingly honored by his sworn enemy in public. Okay, this doesn't just happen in the office. Remember, he's supposed to bring the horse through the city square for all to see what happens. And this points us, of course, to the public exaltation of Jesus Christ at the end of time, as we see in Philippians chapter 2, where every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and not all of them will like it. Jesus' enemies will indeed on the last day bow the knee and declare Him King. Even Satan will bow the knee and declare Him King. And so the exaltation, the honoring, the preservation of Mordecai points us to the exaltation and preservation of Christ the Messiah, the Savior for us. And so God will one day honor not just Jesus, but also those deplorable Christians with their antiquated morality, those despised Christians when He honors Christ precisely because we are in Christ, we are united to Christ, and the glory He receives is also given to us. And so we see that God moves in mysterious but mundane ways. God moves to preserve His people. We also see that God moves to humble those who hate Him. You see, Haman's hubris is what sets him up for this grand disappointment, precisely because pride makes everything about us. And so Carly Simon could have sung this song Not about Warren Beatty, but about Haman. You're so vain. I bet you think the song is about you, don't you? I'll spare you my singing today. 
But we see again from Proverbs 16 that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that is what is taking place here. And Haman feels it. He's undone by what has happened. And so he hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. He's not wanting to be seen. The shame that Mordecai had as expressed in his sackcloth and ashes has now been transferred to Haman who doesn't want anyone to see him even though they don't get why he feels so bad. But he's undone. He has been humiliated before Mordecai. And so he goes home, in a sense, to lick his wounds. Since this day hasn't turned out quite as he hoped it would. And so once again we see his wife, Jeresh, and we see his advisors, who in this instance are also called wise men, because this, in this instance they're about to say something wise. Uh, earlier they did not. But uh, they're there to listen to his tale of woe. He doesn't want to keep his pity to himself. He wants them to hear his tale of pity and to pity him. It's okay. The, pay, the, the pole is still there. Mordecai will die another day, perhaps, is what he wants to hear. But they do a 180 on him. And they give him... This is so reminiscent of um, when Caiaphas speaks in John 11. That it, it is better for one man to die than the whole nation perish. Where he's not intending to speak truth. But he does. These people aren't expecting to speak, in a sense biblical truth, but they do because they say, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people or the seed of Abraham, literally, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. In other words, my beloved Haman You ain't seen nothing yet. Somehow they recognize that because he is of the seed of Abraham, that he cannot succeed. Not because Haman, I mean, Mordecai is so great, but because Mordecai's God is so great. That all of his plans will come to naught because he will curse those who curse Abraham and his seed. And so again, here's another inkling that this is not just about a personal battle between Haman and Mordecai. This is about the ongoing battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. The seed of Abraham. And Haman is not merely opposing a man, but Haman is opposing the God of the universe, and he will not win. And it has only just begun because this chapter ends on a rather um, ominous note that while they're still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived. 
And you are meant to think back to chapter 1 when the king's units, eunuchs, forgive my inability to speak this morning, the king's eunuchs come to summon Vashti. It wasn't always a good thing when the eunuchs showed up. And here we're meant to, to understand this as, even though the king is not yet angry with Haman, he's about to fall from favor and be dispatched as well. So as I think about this, and I think about this text, and I think about our, our, um, our historical context, shall we say, our temptation is just the same as the temptation of the Jews in the Old Testament to trust in princes, to trust in horses and chariots, to trust in almost anything but God. And our temptation is to scheme, to plot, to somehow devise our own um, deliverance from real or imagined threats. And yet, we are told in places like Proverbs 3, we are to trust the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding. We're we're not intended to... uh, think our way out of the perceived danger. Remember here, they couldn't think their way out of this danger. They didn't even know it existed. But God was at work. That as Christians in this place and in this time, we need to remember that God is at work even though we can't see it. Even though we can't understand it. That we are not to try and deliver ourselves, but we are intended to trust Him to deliver us. We are intended to persevere in prayer. That's what we're intended to do. We are not supposed to be filled with fear about what may or may not happen to us, depending on who may or may not get elected. We are intended to be people who trust in the Lord and seek to do good. As we sang about from Psalm 37. Not fatalistic. Trusting. Faith in God's purpose results in prayer, not in scheming. And so when Jesus ended the parable of the persistent widow, he asked that another question, um, will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? Will he find his people praying? until he returns. And so part of what I hope our circumstances produce in us is a persistence in prayer 
a greater longing for the reign of Jesus. Meaning this. Um, for some reason, I like the movie uh, The Man in the Iron Mask. Some of you are familiar with that. And um, the wrong man was king of France. And the proper king was in an iron mask in a dungeon being hid away. And the three slash four musketeers who are now retired are, one of them is considering coming out of retirement to free the true king. And one of them is wondering, why should I bother to do this? And he asks him, don't you want to serve a good king? I'm hoping that all of this produces in your heart a desire to serve the true king, the good king, so that you're crying out more and more, Maranatha, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Because we look and we see what man has done. The corruption that we produce because we're corrupt. There can be no utopia. There can only be the cataclysmic change that occurs when Jesus returns. So God moves in a mysterious way, a seemingly mundane way, His wonders to perform. Those wonders include the preservation of His people and the destruction of the wicked. It happened that that sleepless night in Susa as Haman prepared to destroy Mordecai, but God piled up coincidence upon coincidence, resulting in the honor and deliverance of Mordecai. This was written down for our encouragement when we suffer unjustly. When people plot against us as individuals and as the church, God will preserve His children. He will oppose the proud. And so in an election season in which we are asked to choose between um, two less than desirable choices, let us trust Let us pray that God would indeed work in a mysterious way His people to protect. Let us not give in to fear and despair. But let us remember that whatever my God ordains is right. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy for us to talk about your sovereignty and about your providence and and then sometimes the rubber hits the road and things aren't working out the way we think they should work out and prospects seem difficult and dim and we're tempted to despair. We're tempted to doubt either your goodness or your power. 
were tempted to um, fall in with uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, to think that life has no purpose, that it's all a cosmic accident, so why try? But Father, while this flesh is unable to trust, we thank you for the Spirit. We thank you for the Spirit of adoption that moves us to cry out and to lay all of our burdens before you, knowing that you care for us because you're our Father. that you care for us because you have given your only Son to be a propitiation or atonement for our sin. And so stir up trust in us. Stir up hope within us. That as we read passages like this and as we read the rest of Esther, you would be doing a work of your Spirit within us so that we profoundly trust you in the middle of our circumstances, which include tumors, which include other illnesses like Parkinson's, which include profound disappointments. Help us, teach us to trust. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.